three. You're listening to Sports Talk Chicago with your host, John Zaglul. John, I am fantastic. Thank you for having me. You got an awesome voice, man, and that was a terrific <laughs> intro. You're like a pro's pro. You know, that was the first time somebody ever said that, John. No, you're the first person to ever say anything like that. That's, that's very interesting. You got it, John. Anything for a fellow Chicago guy? <laughs> well, what a great question. That's a great question. Nobody's actually asked me that. <laughs> I like it. What a great question. I never heard that before. Chase, wait, wait, Chase Utley is what? You're saying he's not a Hall of Fame candidate? You know, it's it's funny. I, I, You may be the only person that I've heard make that connection. Thank you, John, for having me. I'm doing great. By the way, you have an outstanding voice. I'm not sure about your face because I haven't met you, but your voice is great. You're doing a much better job than I ever did. You've had some heavy hitters uh, guests on too, man, so keep up the good work, but it's good to be with you, and I'm ready to talk sports. Hello, everybody, and welcome in to Sports on Chicago. My name's John Zaglore. Great to have you here. Today's edition of the program, are the Bears going to be the worst team in football coming up this season? I doubt it. I'll explain why in just a second. Also, a brand new interview today with Chuck Swirsky, the radio voice of the Chicago Bulls. Talk with them extensively about the Bulls season, what to expect for them come next year, and so much more. It's a great in-depth conversation, and it comes your way near the midway point of this show. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at John Z Sports and on Facebook at John Zagluel. You can watch more of this show, search up Sports Talk Chicago, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, sportstalkchicago.com. Want to start today with this. Do you care who the worst team in football is going to be? <laughs> Realistically, do you? I don't care. It doesn't matter to me who the 27th, 28th, 30th best team in football is going to be. I care about winning. I care about winners. I care about who's going to be in the top five, top ten. Who's going to make the playoffs? Not who's going to be the worst. Who sits there and actually counts down and thinks, hmm, I wonder what the lowest five teams are going to do. wonder where they're going to stand. wonder who they're going to be. <laughs> At the end of the day, any team within that category is a loser. They have serious issues. They need to be worked out. Don't give them the time of day. Don't give them attention when they suck. I never understood the concept of, let's talk about the worst team in the NFL. Let's talk about who's going to be the worst. The worst? How about we talk about the best? How about we talk about top five, top ten? How about we talk about teams who actually succeed, and not the bottom dwellers. I never, ever understood that concept. Maybe it's for money, maybe it's for entertainment, maybe it gets people talking, like I am right now, but regardless, it's stupid. You'll never hear me on this channel, on this program, talk about who are the worst teams in football going to be. It doesn't matter. Don't give them any sort of respect. They all have issues. not going to sit here Talk about the Bears or the Lions and in-depthly explain why they are the worst team in football. It doesn't matter. They suck. There are issues on these teams that have to be worked out. Don't give them publicity. That was just my opening part of the rant. <laughs> I'm serious, though. It makes no sense. Maybe it works for entertainment purposes, but 
I don't find it entertaining. I find it stupid and dumb and actually a bit lazy. Is it really that slow of a news week? You have nothing else to talk about but the five worst teams in football. Where are they going to be? Be better. Not a surprise, it's ESPN coming out with this. Lewis Riddick on ESPN said the Bears would be the, quote, worst team in football. Said also Justin Fields would have an ugly year. We'll talk about that in a second. That could be believable based on the circumstances. But what's the point in saying that? You really think, out of all teams in football, the Bears are going to have the worst season. They're the worst team. Really. So they're going to be worse than Detroit, worse than Jacksonville with a brand new head coach and no direction whatsoever. They're going to be worse than those two teams guaranteed. What about the Browns? What if Deshaun Watson doesn't play? It's going to be Jacoby Brissett and potentially Baker Mayfield and a hodgepodge roster. But no, they're going to be way better, leaps and bounds better than the Bears. I mean, are you kidding me? Why do you have to say they're going to be the worst team in football? Critics said the Bears will be the worst team in the NFL this season, adding to what ESPN's Football Power Index predicted. Okay. Football Power Index, what the hell is that, first of all? The Bears have a favorable schedule, and they have an opportunity to win seven or eight games if they play their cards right. That, to me, does not sound like worst team in the NFL. What about the Texans? Hello? How do you know Davis Mills will do good in year two? They have a new coach, Lovey Smith, and their roster is horrible. How are they going to do good? How do you know? What makes you so confident that the Bears will be even worse than Houston or Jacksonville or Detroit or Cleveland? Seattle, too. Seattle's starting quarterback is Drew Locke. Get that through your head. <laughs> Drew Locke is their starting quarterback as of today. So is Drew Locke going to lead Seattle to an 8-9 record even? No, of course not. But yet, nope, the Bears will be the worst team in football. Book it today. This was obviously sad to get the Bears community riled up. To get people like me mad, other people. It's just a flat-out lie. And I'm not even praising the Bears for what they did. I'm a critic of the Bears. You all know that. But to sit here and suggest they're going to be the worst team by far in football, then you don't know football enough, or you don't pay attention to other teams around the game, or you're trying to get clicks. Maybe that's what really was at fault here, and what was happening. Because Lewis Riddick is a smart guy. Why he thinks the Bears are going to be the worst team in football is just beyond me. I know this team. I know they're not the worst team in football. They suck, don't get me wrong, but they're not the worst. They're not horrible. There are teams in worse situations than the Bears, and there are teams that will perform worse, guaranteed, than the Bears. Guaranteed, the Lions will be worse. Yes, guaranteed, Jacksonville will be worse. Guaranteed, Seattle will be worse. Those are guarantees. Cleveland could be, depending on their quarterback situation. There are other teams as well. So before we sit here and say the Bears are going to be the worst team in football, let's back that statement up a bit. This is why at times I hate national media. There's no need to say this. 
And the fact that you're saying this in the middle of June shows me you got nothing to talk about. Slow news week, nothing to say, so we'll put out a ridiculous statement like this to get clicks and get people enraged and cause more people to watch the show. Yes, it's the nature of the business. It is entertainment. I understand that part of it. But these are ludicrous statements. And true fans and true people who have a brain know it doesn't make any sense to say this. You guys are smart. Fans are smart. And they know not to even worry about statements like these. That's why a lot of people don't watch ESPN anymore. <laughs> no one wants to hear this BS all day long. On First Take or any of their other shows. Nobody cares. No one wants to hear it. It's nonstop arguing about things that don't even matter. Nobody gets into the weeds and actually analyzes situations or simply tells the truth. All these shows are scripted. And Lewis Riddick's comment was either scripted or it was done for clicks. Either way, it's wrong. It's wrong to do stuff like that, but it's wrong logistically. It's just a wrong statement. The Bears are not going to be the worst team in football. No sense. What about the Jets? How about the Jets? They're going to be worse than the Jets? Come on, Giants! Daniel Jones is starting! <laughs> Do you know your 32 NFL teams? Do you know every team that plays in football? Obviously not. Lewis Riddick might be forgetting about the five or six teams I mentioned who will be worse than the Bears. Guaranteed! There's no question on that. If the Jets do better than the Bears, I'm going to be colossally shocked. Super shocked. It's not going to happen. <sighs> I know he said that Justin Fields could be suffering. I understand where that comes from. The Bears have not done enough wide receiver-wise to help out Fields. They have a brand new offensive line. They need guys to get some reps. I get it could be an ugly year for Fields. Maybe. I would hope it is better than last year. We see some improvement. That way we know that Justin Fields is capable of being a good NFL quarterback. That's not my issue. The issue is saying the Bears are going to be the worst team in football in June during a slow news week to generate clicks when you know there are five or six teams who will guaranteed be worse than the Bears. Guaranteed. This is my problem with this whole situation. The Justin Fields stuff, I can understand where that comes from. I get it. I understand. And I'd agree with it fully, but I get where it's coming from. And I would expect, to an extent, to see maybe it being a tougher season for Fields. I get that. I could see it. That's not my issue. At all. I don't see that being a problem, but to say they're going to be the worst in football, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't add up. The Bears have at least a better offensive line. Their defense is getting better. Justin Fields has shown improvement already in practice. It won't be a 3-13, and 3-14 season. He'll probably win at minimum 5 or 6 games. Maximum, I could see 10 based on the schedule. Schedule's weak, weaker. I could see it. Anywhere from 5 to 10 games they'll win. That is not the worst in the NFL. So by... Just that reason alone, 
It's a false statement to make. And I like Lewis Riddick, but this was just dead wrong. Sometimes you're dead wrong. I've been dead wrong. He's dead wrong right now. There's just no way it's going to happen. Well, Justin Fields have a top year? Absolutely. Absolutely. New offense, second year. No more Matt Nagy screwing him, but a new offense he has to learn. Arnold Mooney's his only real wide receiver. Maybe Byron Pringle, maybe Bella Jones Jr. We don't know what their role will be offensively. Evan Montgomery's entering a contract year. You have a new O-line you have to get used to. Yes, it might be a tougher year for Fields. And he has to grow as a player. Cut down on the turnovers, the fumbles especially. Interceptions, be more accurate. All these things we're going to be asking of him. And we hope that he can deliver 100%. But the Bears will not be the worst team in football. They won't. That's just a statement for clicks. And I guess it worked because I'm sitting here making a video about it, but I just find it so absurd to even make that claim. How do you know? And again, back to my original point in the open, why does it matter? Why do we have an infatuation with who the worst team is going to be? Who cares? Be better. Let's talk about the top 10. Let's talk about the top 5. Top 2. Why are we talking about who are the bottom 5 going to be? Who cares? That means they suck. I never, ever understood discussions and sports shows about who the worst team will be. Does it matter? Who cares? That means they're horrible. That means they shouldn't even get publicity. Or if they do get publicity, it better be for firing their head coach or GM or selling the team, whatever it might be, along those lines. Now, though, I think these are going to be the five worst teams. Let's break down the list. Let's rank them from five to one. Who's going to have the worst record? Who's going to throw the most interceptions? Who the hell cares? How about we talk about wins? Let's talk about numbers. Let's talk about passing yards and touchdowns and best teams and Super Bowl winners. Not who's going to get the number one pick next year. I don't care. And if it's the Bears, so be it. If the Bears are going to be the worst team in football this year, so be it. But you don't have to sit here and talk about it like that. There's no need. It's a lazy segment that they fit in this week because there's no NFL news. This is downtime for NFL football, understandably. Won't ramp up again till August. You got two months of complete downtime, and nobody wants to talk about baseball or basketball or the NHL. So instead, people regurgitate the same football headlines and put them out and say, oh, here's something good, here's something that'll get clicks. Who cares? Let's be real here. I would never make a bottom five list and put it out there, or say, this team's going to be the worst, and here's why. Does it matter? And does anybody care? And is that a productive conversation to have? No. You don't need me to tell you why the Bears suck all the time. You don't need me to tell you why, oh, they're going to be the worst team, or Detroit's going to be the worst team, here's why. Who cares? How about we talk about logistics and who's going to be the best team? Let's talk about fundamentals. Let's talk about why they're going to be good. What they need to succeed. Now, they're just going to suck. <laughs> they're going to be horrible. They're the worst team in football. Book it. What a great prediction. Wow, good job. Round of applause. Who cares? 
Maybe this is for prognostication purposes, but I don't find that impressive. I don't find that amazing. Wow, what a great mind. He knows who the worst team's going to be. It doesn't matter. And you're not a prognosticator if you think the Bears are going to be the worst and it turns out to be that way. No, that's an easy and lazy prediction to make. How about you give some substance? How about, yeah, Justin Fields might have a tough year, but the Bears will be 28th, 27th. Here's my 1 through 32. That's fine, but not, oh, they're just going to be the worst, and we'll leave it at that. Let's move on. This was done to generate clicks, to generate outrage, which I guess it worked. But if you want real analysis, don't listen to segments like these, because they're not going to help anybody. It just adds more flame to the fire, and it doesn't provide any analysis whatsoever. It's just a take. And I give takes all the time, but that's purely a take, with no background, no evidence, no circumstances, nothing. Just a take. Bears are going to be the worst. Okay, on to the next segment. Here we go. What does that offer? What does that contribute to the conversation? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Word of warning to you, when you look for your football news, your Bears news, or any news, don't just look for takes to get you riled up. Look for analysis. Look for truth. Hard to find these days, but look for truth. Not just, here we go, and I'm mad, and here's a good take. What about the analysis part? What about the in-depth opinion part? Not just, yeah, it's a five-word sentence, and we're going to move on. Or here's a good sound bite, and we're going to move on. That's done to generate clicks. It's not done to give you real, true, in-depth analysis. And that's why this statement from Lewis Riddick is a problem, and why I don't care for it at all. For to come here on Sports Talk Chicago, my interview with Chuck Swirsky comes up next, so stay tuned. Sports Talk Chicago. Here for John Zaglula, and we are back and ready for today's special guest. He's the radio voice of the Chicago Bulls and a member of the Chicago Land Sports Hall of Fame. Please welcome Chuck Swirsky to the program. Chuck, it's great to have you on again. How are you? John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for being here. Lots to talk about today with the Bulls. Very good season. What do you make of it, first off? Well, I think you really have to separate the first half and the second half, but the final equation is I think it was a terrific year for the Bulls. A lot of growth, a lot of development. Um, you know, you played through adversity, and there was a lot with injuries and COVID and inconsistent play. But the truth of the matter is that I'm very, very proud of what the ball club with the organization accomplished in 21-22, and they can build on this as the offseason is underway, even though we have you know some finals games left, maybe one, maybe two. But nonetheless, bottom line is that if somebody told me that the Bulls would finish in the playoffs with the top six seed, I'd say take it and run with it. And that's exactly what happened. And so I was very encouraged by their uh, play. How significant was this past season for the new regime? Well, it was significant, John, because, I mean, I was – Listen, we, we all want our teams to win. It doesn't matter what city. 
We could be in Boston, Philadelphia, Detroit, Cleveland, L.A. As a fan, you want to see your team do well. I get that. It doesn't work that way. As we know in Chicago with different teams, you're going to have some dry you know, periods of time in your franchise. You're going to have success. You're going to kind of hit the road a little bit. You're going to have some bumps. You're going to have maybe a year or two, and then you're going to fall back. So what I think that the organization is doing, they want to sustain a level of excellence. And by that, I mean, instead of saying, okay, we're going to win 47 games, 53 games, 48 games, and then all of a sudden we're back to 35. I think this team and this organization starts with ownership, management, character of players. They want a long run of successful teams that go deep in the playoffs. Not saying they're going to be in the finals every year. No team is that. I get it. But if you're in the hunt and you go into a season saying, listen, we've got a shot at winning this thing. That's what I think in terms of my brain and my mindset, what this organization wants to sustain a sense of winning at a very high, high level. And having said that, I think 21-22 was the first seed in doing that. This organization, let me tell you something what I've learned about Michael Reinsdorf and Arturis and Mark and J.J. Polk in a very brief period of time with this new regime is that they don't, they're, they're not messing around here. They are, they are in this not only to win. Everyone says, well, we, we want to win. That's all great. But, I mean, they want to win a championship. And they're very aggressive, which I love. And I also appreciate the fact that they have brought in some really good people with this organization. Are they set up for sustained success right now, do you think? Well, I think I think they're building towards that. I mean, you know, number one, they inherited a situation that obviously needs a lot of work, John. <laughs> a lot of work. And then they make the big trade for Vooch. And I think, you know, Vooch gets beat up a lot in the media. And I don't really like that because I know what he's capable of doing. I saw his volume of work in Orlando. It's a different situation here in Chicago. Okay. In Orlando, John, he had Aaron Gordon, right? And, you know, he had Fournier. All right. I, I get that. But now, all of a sudden, he's got Levine, and then all of a sudden, you add in DeRozan, and it's a different mix, and it's a transition for him. But I love Vooch, and I think the world of him is a person first and foremost, and I love his game. And I, it hurts me to see how many people are down on him. And he's a quality all-star caliber player. He's been to two all-star games. So he's, he's, he's not a guy that's just a journeyman player. So this team with, with Arturis and Mark and JJ and the rest of the front office staff, they're going to put together a team that still has an opportunity to win now, but also building blocks for the future. Why do you think Booch is such a negative reputation? Well, I, you know what? I don't know. I, I mean, you know, like, I don't know what they're, I mean, are they expecting? I don't know what they're expecting. All I know <laughs> is that, like, you know, uh, when you read 
Twitter, which I do, maybe I shouldn't. And, you know, when people start sending me notes during the game, how come this, how come that, you know, that that's the passion of a fan. And I love it. And I love our fans. Trust me. I love our fans, but sometimes our fans are only looking at a certain element of someone's game. There are very few players in this league that you can say uh, have a high, high, high level where you can say this is the consummate two-way player. And I think this is where the league is going right now, John. And it's going to have a ripple effect with colleges, G League, high schools. Number one, you've got to shoot the basketball. If you can't shoot, you're in trouble. The days are over where you're going to have a designated type player. Unless you are so gifted as a big with shot blocking capabilities, rim protection, okay, and a defensive backline stopper, okay, because then you're talking about different layers of helping a team win defensively. You need two-way players. You need two-way players, especially on your wings. You need two-way players as a big guard. And so this is where I think the league is headed. And that's why I think it's going to be very intriguing to see where all this goes. See, if you tell me, okay, I've got a really good defensive player and there are really good defensive players in this league who can match up and lock down. Then I say to myself, okay, that's great. We got to work on his offensive game. We've got to put him in a position where he is a threat. So when I'm defending, let's say, John, I'm, I'm guarding you, and I know that you're a really good defensive player, but offensively, you're kind of like on a scale of one to 10, maybe a five or a four. And so now I can drift. I can spray out. Well, if you, with your player development, if you get better, and let's say you're a four and a half, but all of a sudden you become a six, six and a half on that scale. Then all of a sudden, as a defensive player, I can't start looking over and shading. Now I've got to be worried about you, John, because I know you can put the ball on the floor, you can get to the rim, or you can knock down that hoop. That's where this game is going. And that's why as a player personnel guy or GM, you've got to find really good two-way players. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. How do you feel about that ship, though? Because you've been around the NBA for 20, 30 years at this point. How do you feel about that ship going to a two-way type atmosphere versus specialty players back in the 90s and 2000s? Well, I mean, this you know, the game is always changing. I mean, I, I loved the NBA in the 60s when I was a kid, and the athleticism wasn't there. I mean, you know, like there, you had a few players in the league, but I mean, nothing like today. I mean, these, I mean, like, um, I get it. Like you're so athletic, but now they're trying to catch up with how do I play the game? Because they, they come out at 19 years old or they were the best player on their team as a 10 and 11 year old. And the coach just said, all right, do what you have to do. And, you know, and, and, you know, when they go to college, they're the best player or one of the best players on their basketball team. And, you know, college coaches, a lot of time, are judged by recruiting and not developing players. Because if you know you're one and done and you're looking at the bottom line and saying, okay, I'm going to coach them 
but I'm only having him for 30 games. And he's really, really good on the offensive side. And I've got to start running plays for him. Well, that's all well and good. But the truth of the matter is you are the, the pro coaches are coaching them. It's not the college coach. The pro coach gets them at a very raw stage in their development. So two-way players, to me, this is where the game is going. Shooters, 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 and those shooters have got to play deep. Because, I mean, if, if, if all I do is shoot the ball, but I can't play D, what, what good does, you know, that, what does that do to help my team? Do you think Bucevic qualifies as a good enough two-way player? Does he have more improvement to undertake I, I, as well? Listen, here's my take on Booch. You know, he's anyone who can get you on a consistent basis anywhere between nine and 14 rebounds a game, to me, I'm taking that guy. He is a double-double guy. I mean, we aren't talking we, – we are still talking about a player in his prime. We're not talking about a 34-, 35-year-old player. You know, we're talking about a guy who is still a starting big in this league without any question. So, I mean, I, I – you know – I don't know what where this is all going because I'm just the broadcaster, but I'm a huge Vooch guy. I'm just putting it on the table. Big Vooch guy. Chuck Squirsky here on Sports Talk Chicago. Chuck, let's talk Zach Levine. How important is he to this team long term? Well, I mean, you know, I think everyone wants him back. I don't know the X's and O's and, you know, that's way above my pay grade. But I'll tell you one thing about Zach. Uh, he he obviously was hurt this year, and you know he, I mean, hurt, injured, whatever. There's a difference between being hurt and injured. I think he played through this. I think he was hurt, and I don't think he was at a point. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, the franchise isn't going to hurt a player if a player can't play and he's been medically red flagged, they're going to send him out on the floor because you, you would be doing the player and the franchise a major disservice. And the Bulls didn't do that. You know, when he couldn't play, he would say, you know what, I can't go. My knee sore. Okay, you know, let, let, let it calm down. Everything's fine. You tell us when you're good to go. Uh, but I think we saw that when healthy – Zach Levine is an elite player in this league, and he has worked on his defense. And I give the guy a lot of credit because he could have mailed it in. A lot of players mail it in and give the lip service. Yeah, I'm going to work on my defense. And then all of a sudden, after 15, 25 games, they revert back to where they were. That's not the case with Zach. Zach wants to be a complete basketball player. And, and John, I'll never forget, I had a conversation. In fact, I had a few conversations with the late John Wooden, who to me was like an amazing human being, amazing human being. And we started talking about offensive players. And he said, you know, your best offensive player should be your best defensive player. And I started thinking about all the players that John Wooden had. I mean, if you go back to the mid-60s, and you talk about guys like Walt Hazard, 
Gail Goodrich, and then the 70s, you know, where you had Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and that group. And then you had Bill Walton, and you had, you know, so many great players pass through UCLA, Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe, all these players. They were two-way players. They played defense. They were the best player. I mean, Bill Walton was a really good defensive player. Kareem was a really good defensive player. I wish I wish people ranked Kareem higher on that level of top five players. John, it's an unbelievable disservice to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that no one ever, ever puts him in that top five category. I don't get it. Where do you think he lands on your list if you had to rank maybe a top five? Well, I think that uh, Jordan is number one. And John, I'll, I'll tell you what, um, and, I'm, I, and I'm saying this with all sincerity, what LeBron is doing, I think you have to put LeBron now as number two. I think you got to look at LeBron as the second best player to ever have played this game next to Jordan. Um, and then after that, you know, the three, four, five, I think Kareem is in there. But what, what happens over a period of time, because young people never saw Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain play. They never saw Oscar Robertson play. They never saw Elgin Baylor play. And, you know, I mean, if you talk to this generation of if you're 20 and 30 years old, okay, let's say you're a 30-year-old basketball fan, John. If you're 30 years young, Michael Jordan retired with the Wizards and I can't even believe I'm saying that because I think of Jordan as a bull, but he retired really as a wizard in the early 2000s. Okay, so let's say that's 20 years ago. Okay, you were 10 years old if you're a 30-year-old basketball fan. So maybe you saw Jordan play a little bit as a wizard, but you know, in 1998, that's you know how many years ago? We're looking at 24 years ago. Right. Well, unless you go YouTube, you don't remember Jordan as a player. You, you know, I mean, Larry Bird retired in that same time frame, uh, maybe, you know, early 90s, mid 90s, he retired. Never, people never saw Larry Bird play. And, you know, which is hard to fathom, but that's what happens in sports. So I think Kareem definitely is a top five player. No question. Do you have a problem with that? Fans or younger fans not recognizing these great players of all? Well, you know what, John? Because it's, it's listen, when I was growing up as a kid, yeah. I'll tell you who I followed as a kid. My, I, Willie Mays, my generation. Brooks Robinson idolized him. I, I wore number five. I would watch Brooks Robinson play baseball. In those days, John, we didn't have satellite TV. There was no cell phones social media, anything. We had, growing up in Seattle, John, we would get, like the rest of the country, one baseball game a week, the NBC game of the week. First it was on CBS, and then it was on NBC. One game a week. We didn't have a baseball team with the exception of the Pilots in 69, and they moved to Milwaukee. The Pilots were in Seattle one year. We would get the NBC game of the week, and so it was a big deal when, when the game of the week was on. But so I relied on the sporting news 
which was a publication, weekly publication in newspaper form. It would arrive in a brown envelope and you'd get it on a Thursday or Friday. They would have all the box scores, all the box scores of all the major league games. But I grew up like idolizing Brooks Robinson. I loved those Oriole teams of Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, Boob Powell, Don Buford. I mean, you know, the pitching staff of Jim Palmer. You know, the year they had four 20-game winners of Jim Palmer, Pat Dobson, Dave McNally, Mike Cuellar. Those were some really good teams. But, you know, so watching, you know, those Oriole teams and then Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle, and then, in, you know, in football, you had those great Packer teams of Bart Starr and Jim Taylor and Paul Horney, and you could go on and on. But, you know, I, I never saw a lot of athletes that preceded those athletes. So, you know, it's, it's just a wave and a chapter of life, and you go on and on. I mean, I remember doing a speaking engagement, John, uh, a couple of years ago before COVID, and Someone asked me the greatest hitter I've ever seen in my life. And I said, you know, like, where you want to start with Pete Rose? You want to talk about Rod Carew? You want to talk about Boggs? You want to talk about, you know, Tony Gwynn? These kids, 17, 18 years old, they had no idea who I was talking about. <laughs> no clue. Rod Carew, who is that? Okay, well, let's talk about Rod Carew, you know? Uh, interesting, you know, batting stance, you know, twins, angels. Okay, who who is Boggs? Who's Wade Boggs? And, and I mean, that's that's what happens. You know, you flip the page. I mean, Chuck, I'm 22 and I know all those guys. So it hurts me to hear people my age not know them because they're legends. I didn't watch them play, but I know their greatness. So yep. take it for what it's worth. Yep, exactly right. Chuck Swirsky here on Sports Talk Chicago. Chuck, what do you expect out of the Bulls come next year? Well, I mean, you know what, John? You, probably we should re, you know, reconvene in in October, and you can ask <laughs> me that question because I mean, I listen. I think the organization is looking at everything right now. Um, you know, they they've got the 18th pick, and they've got. A little wiggle room, not much with the cap, but um, you know, I I think they're obviously they want to improve. They they know what's coming. They see what's happening right now in the East, and and I'll tell you what: if you go down, whether you know Boston looks like right now that they've got a pretty good thing going with a mini run uh, ahead of them. And again, things can change, as we know in Chicago. Well, you're one injury away, one major injury to a key player, and you're right back at, at square one, you know. But Boston, these, these kids, and they still are kids, with Tatum and Brown, Robert Williams, I mean, this is a pretty good core to, to build around. So Boston's not going anywhere. I think it's going to be interesting to see what Philadelphia does um, because, you know, they make this big trade for Harden, and I'm not sure it's they're still trying to navigate their way through that. And they're probably trying to do some things with their bench and dangle some dead money that's coming off the books with a player 
if they can get a player to come in. So I think Philadelphia is going to have an interesting offseason. I think Brooklyn is going to have a very interesting offseason. And it depends on the health of Ben Simmons, because I think Brooklyn is in a position where they've got to find 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 a way to end the drama. And they had a lot of drama this year. And they've got to put themselves in a position where they get back to just, all right, let's focus on the floor and not off the court. But they're still a, a very good team, especially if Simmons is healthy, you know. Uh, and as a fan, I hope he is healthy because I want to see him on the court. But so you got, you know, Boston, you got Philadelphia, you got, um, you know, Brooklyn, you got Miami. And one thing, as we know with Pat Riley, he's not afraid to shake things up. And I'll tell you what, I see a lot of Pat Riley in our tourists. Really? I do. Yep. Wow. I, That's I, high praise. Well, I see a lot, and 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 it is high praise. But I I've been around this game a long, long time, very long time, and I mean I go back to following the NBA as a six, seven year old kid, picking up a basketball digest and taking it to bed with a flashlight, memorizing names and general managers and head coaches with an encyclopedic memory of who these people were. So putting myself in a position now where I can talk on programs like with you, John, about the history of the sport that I love. But when I see, I mean, Pat Riley played, I get it. And he coached. Okay. Arturis hasn't coached in the NBA. Arturis never played an NBA game. He was a really good, very good college player, very good international player, but his makeup and the way he views the game and how he expects the game to be played with toughness and grit, but but also, you know, having a culture within that culture of not um, of not deviating and getting away, um, you know, where this plan will work for a couple of years and then we're gonna go a different direction. Well, I think I think Arturis in his mind and his view and vision of the Chicago Bulls is. He's got a plan in place that is going to extend from, you know, years and years and years, not just, okay, we had a good three-year run. Oops. You know, just like with Miami. I mean, listen, Miami, Miami's been really, really good. They've had an excellent coach. They've had an excellent front office. They have an excellent ownership and they've sustained this. And, you know, they've had superstar players who have bought into this culture. And if you don't buy in, boom, you're out. Who do you like in the draft this year for the Bulls? Well, you know what? Here's my take. With the 18th pick, there are probably three or four guys. Who knows? Maybe they've probably already narrowed it with these mock drafts. Everyone does a mock draft, John. And so they probably have something, a vision in mind. Here's my take after talking with personnel directors over the years. When you have a pick, when you start talking anywhere 17 through 30, they line up three or four guys on the board. If there is one player 
that has separated themselves from the other two or three, and that player is on the board, you take them. Let's say that player is gone. So, John, now you have two, three, and four left. you got three names on the board, and you're up. And then you say to yourself, how big of a gap is between your second and your third? If there is a gap that's, you know, big, you take second. If you have in your in your scouting reports believe that two and three are basically dead even, then you go for your need at a position. But you only do that if it's ever so close in your evaluation of talent. Um, and so uh, to me, that's how I would go into this draft. We could throw a bunch of names, but the truth of the matter is that I think that uh, you, you, to me, you always take the best player available, period. I don't care of the position. And I'm going to date myself. We were talking about history. Jim Finks ran the Chicago Bears for many years. And he was one of my favorite people just to ask questions about how you put a team together. And he was awesome. He was so generous with his time with me. And we were talking about the draft and with the Bears. And all I have to do, John, is look at the Bears draft in the late 70s to mid 80s when he was there with the Bears. He would take offensive linemen and linemen, period. And everything, listen, you're going to make some hits. You're going to have some misses. Very natured, John, of the business. It happens to everyone. It happens to Pat Riley. It happened to Jerry West when he was running the Lakers in Memphis, you know, arguably one of the top executives ever in this league. It happened to Red Arbach when he was running the Boston Celtics. It happens. It, it, we're, we're human beings. We make mistakes. But Jim Finks told me, you always take the best player available. And even if you have four gifted offensive linemen, but the best player on your board is an offensive lineman, you take them. And you worry about it later because if you collect assets, then teams are going to say, hey, I saw you have the, an extra guard or an extra tackle. Um, you know, are you interested in moving on? Well, really not interested in moving on, but what are you thinking? And that's how you start a conversation that leads to a trade because you have assets. And to me, the more assets you collect, okay, then you're in a position of strength and you can do some things. But if you hold on to those assets too long, then they no longer become assets uh, because everyone's got flaws and these teams aren't stupid. They see what you see, John, what I see. Now, if they've got a guard that is, you know, or a forward that is like not getting a lot of playing time because somebody in front of them is better or has long-term deal and they can't move that contract and they've got a guy that's playing behind them that they think they can get some value for, 
then that changes the whole scenario. What a come with Chuck Swirsky. In just a moment, stay tuned. This is Sports Talk Chicago. Chuck Swirsky, still here on Sports Talk Chicago. Chuck, a few more questions before we finish up. First off, this new era of Bulls basketball winning. You probably haven't been used to it in a couple of years. How's it feel to call these games? Well, it's great because we're relevant, you know? I mean, <laughs> really. I mean, hey, I think it's great. You know, listen, as a broadcaster, I want the Bulls to go 82-0. I mean, that's the way I'm wired. I, I want our team to win. Now, when I call a game, I still come down to the basic fundamentals as a broadcaster. You have to call the game the way you view it and have integrity in doing so. It never becomes personal, though, John. If, if, if a player is having a bad night at the office, you report what you see and you let it go. It has never, ever, ever become personal with me, ever. And these the players aren't robots. But I, I do love the fact that when the Bulls step on the floor, that they go in with the mindset and the opportunity to win NBA games. It's hard winning games. People think it's easy. It's not easy. This is a very competitive world that we're living in, in the NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, NFL. You've got, in the case of the NBA, you've got these teams that are just busting their tail to get better. And the pressure on these front offices and coaches and players to not only be successful, but go deep. I mean, and I'm going to give you an example. So we play Boston in November. And, John, you probably have a computer in front of you. You can look up the game. I think it's late October, early November. Bulls are in Boston. And the Bulls are down by like 20 points in the fourth quarter, 19, 20, whatever it was. And all of a sudden, as you know, NBA players, really, really good. And a 19-point lead evaporated like that. Boom. Bulls went on a run. Actually won the game. And people were down because Tatum is just doing his thing. And Jalen Brown's doing his thing. And I'm looking around. And especially in the first half of the season, Boston was not a very good team. They were just an average, below average, underachieving club. And after our game in Boston, Marcus Smart went public and criticized Brown and Tatum. Now, let me tell you what, John, when you do that, it better work. Because if it doesn't work, that locker room is not going to be good. And then you've got to, as a GM for Brad Stevens, you may have to pick up that phone and start making some calls. And no one wants to do that with kids in the case of Brown and Tatum, if it's not working. Because I love Marcus Smart. I think he's the heart and soul of that club. Uh, I mean, I wish, you know, I, 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 I hope people understand how invaluable guys like Smart and Draymond Green are with their grit and toughness. Right. And it's not fake hustle. It's here in the heart. It's always about the heart, John. So now Marcus Smart calls out Tatum and Brown. And it worked because they had a player meeting. And sometimes player meetings are really, really good. Sometimes player meetings 
are really, really bad. And it gets personal. And you got to walk out of that player meeting and you got to say, okay, you know what? Am I going north or am I going south? Because I just got my feelings hurt by players calling me out. Or I had, you know, somebody rub me the wrong way. Am I going to take that and be a better player, a more useful player, a more resourceful player? Or am I going to let this beat down carry carry my attitude to the floor where I separate myself from the team? Or am I going to lock in and we're going to become tighter? Well, Boston became tighter. And you know, Emil Yudoka has done a great job with this club. You know what? Just kind of said, all right, you know what? This is who we are. This is how I think we should play in our identity. And they bought in. Chuck, before we finish up today, too, last question. What's the favorite dance of yours after a win? What's the favorite one you've done so far? <laughs> well, John, you know what? I mean, there's so, I mean, I don't even know what I'm doing half the time. <laughs> and no one knows what I'm doing half the time. But I just have fun. You know, let me just say this about the dance team, because it started during COVID. You know, we were like right. doing road, we were doing road games, as you know. Our engineer took like a video clip on his <laughs> iPhone and posted it, and it went viral. And now it's crazy. And broadcasters, players, you know, Steph Curry told me we we're playing Golden State here. And I'm just talking to him prior to the game. And I went to say goodbye to him. And I'm, I'm starting to walk down the hall in front of the Golden State locker room. He goes, Chuck, one other thing. You're not dancing tonight. <laughs> That's the true story. Wow. But, uh, uh, but anyway, you know, we, we don't do it to disrespect the uh, opposition or anyone connected with the opposing team. But you know what? I, I love my job so much, and I love when the Bulls win, and, you know, you just – but it have some joy. And that's the thing. I, I like to bring joy and it's heartfelt and it's sincere. So hopefully we can dance a, a few more times next year. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining me. Great insight, great stories too. Uh, looking forward to this season and looking forward to the next time we chat as well. Yeah. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure. I talk there with Chuck Swirsky, and that'll do it for us today here on Sports Talk Chicago. Big thank you to Chuck Swirsky himself, Matt Dubiel, WCKG, Jim DeTalbin, to Marble Entertainment for making this show a success. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at John Z Sports and on Facebook at John Zagluel. You can watch more of this show, search up Sports Talk Chicago, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, sportstalkchicago.com. Another great show comes with tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. Till then, stay safe. So long, everyone. No! No! We're the turtles!